You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. Tonight, we're going to take a look at a series of articles by a Chicago Tribune author named Bob Weindrich. There was a total of nine of these articles published under the title Portrait of a Hitman, and they were interviews with a man named Charles Chucky Cremaldi. Quick commercial, don't forget to support your podcast. Use your Venmo app. My code is GanglandWire. Buy me a cup of coffee, just a buck or two. Charles Chucky Cremaldi was a hitman and an enforcer, worked with Mad Sam DiStefano and Anthony Spilatro. During the early 70s, he had come up through the, uh, the ranks. The FBI turned him in the early 70s, and the first case was going to be the, the primo case in which they were going to take down Mad Sam DiStefano, which had been a, uh, a burr under the saddle of the FBI for a long time. And, and at that time, Tony Spilatro wasn't really all that much, and he was more like just an underling to Mad Sam. But Chucky Cromaldi had set up another loan shark named Leo Foreman. Uh, Mad Sam, go back and listen to my, I think it was a two-part uh, series on Mad Sam DiStefano. He he was crazy. <laughs> he was totally crazy. Uh, and he got angry at Leo Foreman, who was another loan shark. I don't know, it was some kind of a business thing, probably who knows with Mad Sam. Uh, Chucky Camaldi and and. Tony Splatro set him up where they could get him alone in uh, Mad Sam DeStefano's brother's Mario DeStefano's basement. As a matter of fact, that's how they made him. When Chucky, when they turned Chucky Cromaldi and he told him about this murder, they knew there were some paint chips and some other physical evidence taken off of Leo Foreman's clothes that he was wearing whenever they found him. And then they got a search warrant for Mario DeStefano's home for the basement of his house he had sold the house, I believe, by then, but they got a search warrant for that house and went in and they found paint chips and, and other physical evidence that matched up to paint chips and other, you know, bits of wood or whatever that were in uh, Leo Foreman's clothes. You've got a co-conspirator, Chucky Cromaldi, testifying that he helped Spilatro and Mad Sam do this murder. Then you've got physical evidence that places Leo Foreman in the place where the informant claims that the murder was done. It should be a pretty good case. Now, probably the fix was in. Uh, Tony Spilatro got found not guilty on that. I believe Mad Sam was, was killed before they actually went to trial. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. I'm pretty sure that's right. But anyhow, uh, I digress into this. Chucky Cromaldi then goes into witness protection, but he, he sits for this series of, of articles, which are really interesting. They're in the Tribune. Uh, our good friend Mike Byrne in the Chicago Outfit Old and New News Articles Facebook page has placed those up there several times. If you if you get on his page and you ask him to do it again, he'll put them up again. If he sees some interest in something like that, he'll put them up again. And they've been up more than once because they're so interesting. But let's go over this this article. The title of this one that I'm going to talk about tonight is Suburban Hospital Served as Mob Hideout, Comma, Playground. There was a suburban hospital, and you look back and see the uh, 
kind of the the history of it. It was this was back in the 1960s and was first called the Bruni B R U N I the Bruni Memorial Hospital started by a man named Julio Bruni. He was a doctor. Soon became known as the North Lake Community Hospital. It was it was in I've got two addresses. It was 311 East North Avenue, I believe, in Northwood. And then it became the Kindred Hospital, and the address currently, and it's still there, is 365 East North Avenue. And that's in North Lake, just north, just south of O'Hara. Now, this Dr. Bruni, he was, uh, he was a medical doctor, all right, but he, was, he worked hand-in-glove with the outfit. He even got caught up in a, a multi-million-dollar counterfeit deal that Anthony Ricardo had gotten going and he got caught with some of the money and and actually took a took a conviction for dealing in counterfeit money during this time the uh, North Lake Community Hospital went into bankruptcy and and then it ended up it never went clear out of being a hospital like I said today it's a kindred hospital but but back then in the later six middle 60s uh, Dr. Bruni allowed his hospital to be used by the outfitter. Uh, question, tell me about the North Lake Community Hospital. Answer, that was one of the outfit places they'd use if somebody was running from the law or if somebody was wanted on a warrant. They'd just check you into the hospital and leave you there for a week or 10 days. There'd be a private room for you. Nobody would ask any questions. You'd be there under a phony name and stay there until the heat cooled down. Then just check out the hospital. Question, did they stay under hospitalization insurance? That's a big question you would have today. Did he have hospitalization or, or on the house? Answer, on the house, I think. Question, nobody talked? I mean the nurses or the orderlies or other hospital personnel? Good question. No, for the most part, I don't think they even knew. It was just somebody in for observation with Dr. Bruni, who was a physician. They'd come in, and actually they wouldn't even take your temperature or anything. They'd have a, the doctor would leave orders to just leave this person alone. Who were some of the people that hit out there? Oh, they'd be people that were like in my position, hit men. People that were in trouble, thieves. I remember they had a closed-circuit TV on every entrance and every exit to the hospital. It was almost impossible for anybody to get out, in or out without somebody knowing they were coming in or out if a police officer or FBI agents or something tried to come in why uh, they would have the security notified that to let somebody else know, let Dr. Bruni know or somebody know that the police or the FBI were coming in so they would then hide the uh, person who was hiding out. What else did the mob use the North Lake Hospital for? Well, they held a lot of big gin rummy tournaments there over the weekends. The outfit guys would go in, they would get a ward, and set up tables and stay in the hospital and get all room service they wanted from the hospital. Who would that be? Well, Sam DiStefano was one of them who would go there for games, and Sam Giancana, Rocco Pranzo, Chucky Nicoletti, and I imagine Tony Accardo and Paul Rica went up there also. Did they each get a private room? Yeah, if they wanted one, they each have their own room. They wanted to have broads to come up. They got that, too. They could get anybody to come and go any time of the night or day in that place. They totally owned the place. It was nothing to call a pizza place. You had to taste for pizza and get them delivered to your hospital room at 3 o'clock in the morning. Of course, that'd be easy now, except 
the hospital staff might be wondering about that. But back then in this deal, uh, I think the hospital staff was probably pretty well wired. He said that nobody really knew it, but you know everybody in the staff knew it. Another another question that Bob Weinrich had of Chucky Cremaldi was about his skill and ability as a hitman and as a gunman in particular. He had claimed he could shoot a man's eyes out at 50 feet. Question, how did you become a good shot? Going to the range all the while I was in Chicago. I used to hit the range at least once every three weeks, that range up on Mannheim Road. I'd also go to the quarries down around Coal City. I'd throw bottles out in the strip mines down there and just shoot them. I like weapons. I enjoy them. I respect them, and I really like them. Do you have a favorite gun? I like a thirty-eight. Did you do anything with your revolvers, anything special to make them work better for you? No, not really. You just keep a nice, clean gun, and you don't have to worry about nothing. You don't have to file anything off like the serial numbers. When you're through with it, you're just going to throw it away anyway. As far as the gun catching in your belt, like a lot of people say can happen when you draw, if you're going to have to pull a gun that fast, you might as well not have it. If you're going to hit somebody, you're going to shoot somebody, odds are you've got the gun out before they even know that they're going to get shot. Question. That range you used. Was it an outfit range? No, not particularly. It was a legitimate indoor range. I'd say, hell, the majority of the policemen use it too. You know, it was nothing to be shooting ne- right next to a copper in the next booth. It was a gun store too, all legit, and the prices were reasonable. What about the guns used for outfit hits? Where did they come from? Oh, different guys that steal them. The word's always out on the street for good, clean guns. I used to pick up quite a few of them. Question, what do you mean by clean guns? Answer, one that's never been used in a killing. They wouldn't care if they were stolen. If they'd ever been used in a robbery or a hit, they, that, was, that was a no-no. If there was ever any ballistics out there that might be matched up to that gun. You didn't want, you wanted, that's what you call a clean gun, one without any ballistics with the police. Very seldom does anybody keep a gun after they kill somebody. As a rule, you wouldn't want to be in contact with that kind of person anyhow. That guy's a goof or an idiot. Question, where'd you get rid of a gun? Oh, the river, the lake, a quarry, many places. Throw them in when you're driving over a bridge. Getting rid of a weapon is no problem at all. You have to wonder how uh, Cremaldi got turned. Now, the FBI used him in a, for their purposes, but they also used him. That was a state case that we talked about for that. That was a state murder case. That's how they got found not guilty. It was in Cook County. Now, uh, the Illinois Crime Commi- Commission and some of their people got him to furnish intelligence information during this time. Uh, he also worked with a uh, James Beasel, um, who was an agent with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, which became DEA eventually. Grimaldi said later that his brother had been a drug addict, and he had always been informed on people who were doing drugs. Some of the people that, that really persuaded him to come in early on were Illinois Bureau of Investigation agents Gerald Lewandowski and Thomas Dury. They had been Chicago policemen before they joined the IBI. They got him to testify about them at the murder trial of Mario DiStefano and uh, later uh, Tony Spilatro. They gave him a grant of immunity because because he was actually part of the people that killed Leo Foreman. The newspaper reporter notes that in interviewing him, whenever Cremaldi would talk about we, it was interesting. He would talk about him and Lewandowski and... Thomas Dury, the IBI agents. Grimaldi would say that 
for the first time in his life, he's speaking kind of warmly about these uh, two police officers. Was they're, they're the ones that, that guarded him during the time and stayed by his side while they were uh, testifying against uh, Sam DiStefano. The newspaper reporter asked him about his relationship with these policemen. The question, did you know that people like these men existed? Answer, only in books. There's no way you can visualize a straight policeman in Chicago until you actually go in and meet some of them. Question, from the outside, you thought a lot of them were crooked? Answer, the biggest part of them, yes. Question, and then what did you find out? Answer, well, there were an awful lot of good ones, straight ones. That IBI is fantastic. They've got good, young, devoted guys, guys who spend a lot of time, free time, devote their own time, don't get paid overtime. It's a gratis thing. They leave their wives. They leave their families to be out in the street doing jobs. And to me, it's just a rarity to see devotion to a job. It's a new organization. I think it's sometimes I think sometimes it'll be the best thing that's happened in Illinois. So that's one of the first ones. I'll look up some more of these. I think they're fantastic insight into the Chicago outfit and the Chicago outfit would be like any other outfit whether it be in Kansas City or the five families in New York, Detroit, Philadelphia, they pretty much are made up of the same people, the same kinds of things. And what I always found fascinating about these guys, like uh, Sam DiStefano, he he was crazy. But he had a wife and kids. Tony Splatro had a wife and kids, loved his kids. I've seen pictures of him on a raft trip down through the uh, Rio Grande with his son. There's a well-known letter of Tony Splatro. Somebody got hold of it, and it's out there somewhere. I've seen I've read it. It's online. Been on one of those Facebook pages where he's given advice to his son, just like any father would, just normal kind of fatherly advice. And I know the guys here in Kansas City were the same way. You know, they, they were uh, uh, devoted to their children, uh, went to their kids' football games and uh, baseball games when they were little and, and did the whole thing. So time for my public service announcement. As always, I thank you for listening to my podcast. Uh, if you have a friend or relative has a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to First Call. Call 816-361-5900 or go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. Now, if you're listening to this on iTunes, how about giving me a good positive review or give me any kind of review? Uh, they like it when you give reviews. They know that makes it, lets them know that people are really paying attention to your podcast. And if you have enjoyed what you hear and would like to support this podcast, as I mentioned earlier, you know, use your Venmo app, buy me a cup of coffee once in a while, or you can go to my website, www.ganglandwire.com, and hit the donate button. For a $25 donation, I'll send you a copy of my documentary, Gangland Wire. I also have a companion book that goes along with that documentary, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Both these works document the Kansas City mob and skimming from Las Vegas casinos. You can rent on digital download my documentary, Gangland Wire. And if you want to get the book, if you do digital books, do the Kindle version because I have link- I used a lot of wiretaps in that. And I linked all the actual wiretaps that I use in the book to the book. So you can be reading along and reading the description of the wiretaps of what they were saying. And rather than just reading about the wiretaps or reading the wiretaps, the transcript, you can actually listen to the, the original people that were the original wiretaps. <laughs> it's kind of hard to spit all that out. Anyhow, sorry about that, folks. 
I have over 200 free back episodes of Gangland Wire for your listening pleasure. And finally, don't forget about the Kansas City Mob Tour app and the Apple App Store. Good night, all you wiretappers out there. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.